I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. My guest today actually needs no introduction because she has the most famous happiness course in history. When Lori Santos announced her course, Psychology and the Good Life at Yale University, it was the highest subscribed class in the 300 years of the history of the university. She then adopted it into a free program on Coursera that has been taken by over 3.3 million people. So Dr. Lori Santos is a professor of psychology and the head of the Seliman College at Yale University. She's an expert in human cognition and the cognition biases that impact better choices. She, of course, when her course became so popular, was on the New York Times and NBC Nightly News, uh, the Today Show, CBS, The Morning, NPR. Her course was published about in GQ magazine, Slate discussed on uh, CNN, on O magazine. Dr. Santos is the winner of numerous awards, both for her science and teaching from institutions such as Yale and the American Psychological Association. But she's also been featured as one of popular science's brilliant 10 young minds and was named Time's leading campus celebrity. She has a podcast, The Happiness Lab, which launched in 2019 and has been downloaded over 35 million times. Uh, One of the things that we want to talk about today is how she's launching a mini season of uh, The Happiness Lab, the podcast on April 5, where it is a special compilation, if you want, where she explores more about ancient philosophies and religions looking for practical well-being lessons that they contain. Personally, uh, some of my favorite is how she discusses Sabbath and the observance of a day of rest uh, in Judaism. Uh, She talks about playfulness in Taoism and how that uh, helps us avoid burnout. She discusses the powerful example of Christianity and Christian principles of forgiveness and how that can help us find happiness in life and uh, overcome grief. Lori today is actually available for me only for 30 minutes. And so this might not be a slow mo episode. It will be a little bit of a fast mo episode. So I'm going to be speaking a little faster. And I hope you enjoy that. At the end of the day, she's truly one of my favorites. She put happiness work and happiness evangelism and happiness research on the map. And uh, I think you're going to enjoy our quick conversation, Dr. Lori Santos. First of all, I want to thank you. I can't believe that I'm talking to you, which is wonderful for me. And I'm going to, I'm going to try to make this uh, quick. We call this slow-mo. So I normally speak very slowly. Not today, because I want to squeeze every <laughs> bit of knowledge out of you. I'll start with, uh, with summarizing this whole thing in one sentence. You are awesome. Aww, You're the best. Thank you. Coming from you, that sounds especially humbling. So thank you. You really are. I I don't know if you're aware of this, but you really set us all up 
you know, those who are on the happiness mission. I think your course at Yale, when it was the most subscribed ever, it's just opened the world's eyes to, hey, by the way, it seems, it seems students in <laughs> Yale are unhappy, right? Which is, which is fantastic, really. And then I know you now have, what, 3.3 million views or something? That's right. Yeah. And then in the, on the online version of the class, which is incredible. Yeah. yeah. But, really I mean, again, is. it shows people need this stuff, right? They're feeling like they're doing everything right, but it's still not working. And I think they're looking for other solutions. Yeah. I mean, so why do you think? Why? I mean, we have so much in life. Why are we still not able to become happy? Why do we need a doctor with a degree to teach us? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty sad, right? You, you really would have hoped that natural selection and evolution could have sorted this out so that we wouldn't be <laughs> to- as miserable as we are. But, but sadly, it didn't. And I think it didn't for, for an interesting reason, which is that we have these misconceptions about the kinds of things that really make us happy. I mean, the goal of natural selection was to get us to survive and reproduce and get babies out into the next generation. It wasn't really trying for us to be satisfied. And I think that maps on to some of the misconceptions we have. You know, we think happiness is about our circumstances, you know, how much money you make, you know, whether you're successful, you know, for my students, it's their grades. But the research really shows that that stuff doesn't contribute to happiness. Or if it does, it's, you know, it's a much smaller effect than we think. And it's for much less time than we think, you know, so you get a good grade and you think, oh, I'll be happy for months, but you're happy for that moment. And immediately you move on to the next carrot, you know, and stick out there, you know, that you're paying attention to. And I think that we go after those things at an opportunity cost of the stuff that really will matter for happiness. Things like social connection, things like doing for others, things like going slow and being present, right? You know, these are all the things we know really do matter for happiness. And I think we're, we're not pursuing them because we're pursuing the wrong stuff. So is it a question of target setting? If we told people, hey, you know what, you're, you're chasing the wrong thing, go ahead and chase happiness, you think people would actually find it in them to be able to find happiness? I think that's part of it. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons, you know, we're really seeing that taking the class, at least the online version of the class, improves people's happiness, you know. So on most kind of standard 10-point self-report metrics of happiness, we're seeing people tend to go up about a whole point, right? You know, so it's not a huge effect, but a a significant one and, and one that probably matters in people's lives. And so I think, yes, if you start going after the right stuff, you will get happier. I think the one problem with that is that it's harder to go after the right stuff with all the structures and cultural pressures to go after the wrong things, you know. So take one of my students at Yale who heard this messaging, hey, grades don't matter, you know, focus on social connection, be present. It's hard for them to do that in an Ivy League school when everyone's worried about internships and getting jobs at Google and these kinds of things, right? It's, I think it can be hard in the culture that we live in to go after the right stuff. And so I think we also need to think about the structures we've created and how we can change those to promote happiness a little bit better. So, Lori, I really always wanted to ask you that question. Why your course? I mean, what did you teach us that was so different that it got you so popular? I mean, there must be some little gold nugget in there that you found. I mean, I know them. I'm just, this is a rhetorical question. (laughs) I want you to find, I want you to tell me in in your mind, what were the two, three things that really opened people's eyes and, and made the course so popular? Yeah, well, just on why it became popular, to be totally fair, you know, there a decade before mine, there was an incredibly popular class at Harvard on the science of happiness taught by Tal Ben-Shahir. And there are lots Tal, of other yeah. universities, you know Tal, right? There's lots of other big university classes on positive psychology, the science of happiness. 
I'm not sure why the Yale one became so viral, right? Why did we get the New York Times article and other classes didn't? I think it's just when good and bad things happen, if it's at Yale, it will wind up in the New York Times. I think that's <laughs> But in terms of why the students flocked, I mean, I think, again, you know, I think these are students who, you know, have geared their whole life towards a certain kind of accomplishment. They wanted academic success. You know, they've been taking extracurriculars. They've been on a path thinking that this is going to lead them to a good life. And they've been very successful at what they'd planned to do, right? You know, my students often report that the moment, the second they found out they got into Yale, when they click the little link and they, Yale, they play this little song, Bulldog, Bulldog, which is one of Yale's <laughs> kind of fight songs. And they said that that moment was one of the happiest moments of their lives. But a lot of them said that like three seconds after that was really depressing because they realized oh. I'd put so much work into this. And now, now what, right? I'm just mm. jumping to the next thing. And so- I really do think that these students are on a path that they've been incredibly successful at, that they are now asking, okay, but what else, right? What am I missing? If I'm so successful at doing all these things I plan to do, what am I missing out on? And it's pretty obvious what they're missing out on. They're missing out on things like sleep. You know, they're missing out on things <laughs> like presence. They're the most time famished individuals I've ever met in my life because they're running from one activity to the next. They tend to think of their friendships in many ways like networking. You know, they've been taught like, oh, use Yale as networking. Use Yale to really connect with people and develop these meaningful relationships. And in many cases, they don't have time for meaningful relationships. One of the most popular memes at Yale is like, hey, let's do lunch. Yeah, let's do lunch. And then, you know, it never <laughs> happens kind of is the mm. joke. Yeah. So I think one of the reasons it became so popular was that, you know, these are students who otherwise think that they've they've succeeded, but they're still feeling really empty inside. And I think they were looking for some solutions. I'm not going to hide my intentions. My, my intention today when we agreed to speak is that I want every one of my listeners to send you so much positive energy and to support. <laughs> no, no, I, I mean this. Actually, you know what, guys? The truth is Lori's work is online, so we're not going to cover all of it. You can't afford to skip any of it. But I actually want you to get to know Lori a little bit. Can I ask you a very, I don't know if you've ever answered this question before. 3.3 million views. Do you know how much of a millionaire that would have made you if you charged for it? <laughs> I do. My husband brings that up on occasion. <laughs> you know, but, uh, but no, I mean, Two things. One is I'm not sure if we would have gotten, you know, over three million views if we were charging for it. Right. You know, so that's a separate discussion. That's so kind of you to say you are the most famous course on the planet. You would have gotten a million. Right. A million is still a lot of money, Laurie, and you put it for free. Yeah. Well, the good news is that, you know, one of the things the happiness work teaches us is that money doesn't necessarily bring you happiness. Money will bring you more happiness if you don't have very much money. But a Yale salary, you know, puts me in a category where I'm earning past the Kahneman and Deaton threshold of $75,000. This is their famous paper about how much money do you really need for happiness. Back in 2009, this was around 75K. I get that from my salary at Yale. And so that money would be wasted on me in certain ways. So. And so did you ever feel that, hmm, maybe I should have just added this little bit? I mean, I'm, the reason I ask you this question, to be very honest, is I lived in California quite a lot when I worked with Google. I was half between California and Dubai. And of course, California is very, very capitalist mindset, right? So it's like, you know, I have this little thing and I'm going to milk the hell out of it and make so much money out of it. And yet you go the exact opposite way. And I, I, I really want to know if, if you ever regretted this, if you ever felt that this was the wrong move. Maybe I should make another addition at the end of the course and charge $200 for it. You know, did you ever go down that path at all? Yeah, I mean, we haven't. I think this is partly the different mindset between like Silicon Valley and 
academia. You know, in academia, I, I give away lots of stuff for free. You know, we review papers and journals for free. Like, we just kind of have this mentality of, you know, give it away for free sort of thing. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't think I have in part because, again, I just think these concepts are so helpful for people. And to be able to get this content out at scale, literally to anyone on the planet who wants to do it. I mean, I get so many emails from folks who say, you know, I wouldn't have been able to afford something like this. You know, the fact that you made it free made me try it. And now I've tried it and I'm sharing it with other people. And so I think it's nice to kind of be able to practice what I preach. You know, if I was saying, hey, all you need, you know, a 75K and you don't need a penny more. And then I was, you know, charging like tons of money for each unit. That might not be great. But yeah, so I think, you know, we happiness experts got to eat. But the nice thing is I still have my, <laughs> wonderful, my wonderful day job at Yale. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that can afford us to eat. You talk a lot about hedonic uh, adaptation and the fact that after a while anyway, if you had made like the $10 million that this would have made you or more, very quickly you would get used to them and they wouldn't make any difference at all. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So, so much of the work really shows that good things make us happy for a very little bit, but then we get used to it really quickly. This is this phenomenon of hedonic adaptation. It's, it's a fancy word for just saying we get used to stuff. And that's true for money, you know, just having this much money in your bank. If you have that one day, the next day, you still have the same amount of money in the bank. It's true for the things that money can buy. So material possessions, for example, you know, if you buy the super nice car, the next day, it's still going to be a super nice car. It's true for relationships, you know, marriage, you can plot this wonderful, what's called the hedonic adaptation curve where you see people's happiness bumps up when they first get married and they're a newlywed, but then within about two years, they're sort of back to baseline in terms of their happiness. And the sad thing is that that's true for most good things in life. And it's one of the reasons that really investing in material goods or changing your circumstances, again, unless your circumstances are really dire, if your circumstances are dire, then yes, change your circumstances. But if it's just kind of good and it's gotten boring, changing it isn't going to help because it will help for a brief second and then you'll just go back to baseline line. Yeah, I remember that vividly. I always tell the story of my first BMW, which I bought with 6,000 miles on it. So it was used, I took it to the service center and, you know, it was a five series. And as they were doing the service, I look at the seven series that's parked over there and I go like, what's wrong with you? When will you have one of those? Right. And it's, it's like, literally, as you rightly said, it's a second. This was like 15 minutes after I bought my car. Yeah. What's wrong with us humans? Yeah. And it's amazing. And one of my favorite podcast episodes from my podcast, The Happiness Lab, was it was an episode about how quickly we get used to wealth. And we interviewed this guy, Clay Cockrell, who's a wealth psychologist. So he's a mental health professional that only treats the 0.001%. You know, so I imagine he's earning more than the 75K, but you know, we could talk about that. But I mean, he has clients, right? I mean, in some ways, based on our beliefs about money, we should be shocked that he has clients, but he has tons of clients and their worries are about money. They'll say things like, you know, I'm only at 500 million. You know, I need to be at a, I need to be at a billion. I really want to be a yeah. billionaire. Or, or yeah. I have, you know, I have 100 million, but I can't buy this painting that I really want to buy. Or where am I going to park my yacht? Here's lots of complaints about you buy the yacht and then you don't have a place to park it. I mean, we, we snicker at it, but it, you know, tells us something important about the human condition. You know, people are playing the lottery, hoping that they win these amounts of money. You know, maybe even in some cases, people who are earning, I mean, if you're a low-income individual, that maybe that makes sense. But some people who are happily middle class, you know, roof over their head, you know, food on the table, and they're still wishing for more. It's sad thinking their life isn't enough because they don't have more. And the tough thing to take is that if they got more, they still wouldn't be happy. You know, immediately they'd be mm -hmm. back at the showroom looking at the next model. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Can I stick with your podcast for a while? Because I know, I know that you're launching a mini series in April, which is a very brave topic. So the topic of talking about the 
relationship between spirituality or religion. So you talk about uh, Taoism, you talk about uh, Judaism, you talk about Christianity and so on. And I find that in the modern world, especially for someone like you who is data-driven and statistics and science, do you find some resistance when you talk about those things now that there is a big pushback in, in the world around religion and spirituality a little more than it used to be? Yeah, I think yes and no. I mean, so this season of the podcast came out of something, you know, that I've known for a long time, which is, you know, I'm here teaching my Yale students about, you know, the neuroscience findings behind meditation. And I'm thinking like, yeah, I didn't need neuroscience findings. We had thousands of years of Buddhist and other traditions that told us meditation is good, right? Money doesn't bring you happiness, right? You know, like give money away to get happier is another one of the big positive psychology effects. Money can make you happier if you're donating it to others. Like, again, we knew that from Christian and other religious traditions. And so one of the things I realized you know, teaching this course is that the ancients got a lot of these things right. They didn't have the sort of mental illness rates that we see today, in part because they had cultural traditions that were pushing them in the right direction. And the goal of the podcast season is to explore those cultural traditions. What did these ancient wisdoms get right? In some cases, ancient religions, also ancient philosophies and things like that. And the season doesn't say that they got everything right, because obviously in the Bible, there's, you know, we should have slaves and eye for an eye and, you know, things that we know probably wouldn't make us happy these days, right? But they did get a few things right, and it's worth exploring spots where the scientific work bears out the ancient wisdom. I love that. I I always call it the fruit salad. If you're given like a basket of apples and there are two that are bad, you don't have to focus on the two. Keep the six good ones and then get two bananas from Buddhism and three oranges from Sufism and then, you know, create an interesting mix of your own little valuable basket, if you want. I was very intrigued by you talking, and I'm encouraging everyone to go listen to the full episodes, of course, but if you can briefly touch on the idea of Sabbath and Judaism encouraging a day off when everyone now is encouraging us to work 24-7. Yeah, well, I mean, this, you know, goes to the heart of Judaism and even Christianity, right? You know, like the first page of the Bible is like the universe is created, big, important thing to have the universe created, but then the creator rests. He rests for a whole day, right? (laughs) It's a commandment to take a day off and rest. And this is so countercultural right now. You know, one of the reasons I loved doing this episode was that I realized that this is something that I struggle with, even just taking a full day off, right? And so I think it's something that we hear. You know, the research suggests that one of the biggest predictors of your happiness is a sense of what's called time affluence. So you feel wealthy in time. The opposite of feeling wealthy in time, time famine, is awful for your well-being. In fact, some work by Ashley Willens, who's a professor at Harvard Business School, shows that if you self-report being time famished, that's as bad for your happiness as if you self-report being unemployed. You know, so you know, we think about the kind of happiness hit that you would take if you became unemployed, you know, losing your income, losing your friends, losing your sense of meaning. That's how bad it is not to have a lot of free time. And so this idea where we take a full day off and not just take a day off, but take a day off with no technology. You just have to be present with your own thoughts, right? Um, I think it's really quite powerful and really hard to do. I love that. I love the idea of completely going back almost to the old days, right? It's like me and the world, really, that's it. No tech, no phones, no nothing. Any others, I mean, any other that you found from spiritual traditions? Taoism, you said, playfulness. That's really, really interesting. 
Yeah, Taoism has all these wonderful ideas. One is sort of playfulness, which they sort of think about in terms of this idea of what's called wei, which is sort of like the natural way is sort of one translation. And wei means just like go with the flow. And we know from all this research in positive psychology that this flow state, right, when you're in a state of play and doing something where you're really kind of super involved, you know, time can pass and you don't notice it. That is the kind of state that leads to a lot of positive emotions. And having a life filled with flow can lead to a lot of life satisfaction. The other nice thing about this idea of sort of playfulness and and sort of flow, it's kind of this idea of not going against the grain. The Taoists talked a lot about the uwe is the water way. And you might think like, well, water is kind of wimpy, like it doesn't do that stuff. But they point out, you know, water over time can like seep in, you know, to cracks and move the biggest mountains. And it doesn't have to do that with a lot of force. It just does that with time by kind of going with the flow. And I think there's a big message there for us too, right? You know, how often are we pushing against something else. You know, a lot of suffering is because we we want something that we don't have or we want the situation to be different. But if we can just allow things to be and sort of go with the flow, that would alleviate a lot of unnecessary suffering in life. I totally agree. I think it's actually quite difficult, however, nowadays, because not because one side is we don't believe that it will deliver, but the other side is if you're a little too playful at work, they'll go like, is there anything wrong with her? I mean, should we, you know, should we ask her to leave? It is actually an interesting thing. Look, I don't have a lot of time with Lori because she's busy today. So I'm going to just tell you, don't miss those episodes. I'm going to be there and I think you should be there too. And I really am very grateful that you're building those. I think this is a very interesting uh, twist. I often hear you say, I struggle with this. That's really eye-opening. So the teacher is not like the Jedi master of happiness. And, you know, you share it so openly. Tell me a bit about that. I mean, have there recently been any struggles that you're working on, something that you believe needs development and so on? Oh, yeah, I struggle all the time. I mean, I think this is one of the reasons that people resonate so much with my class is that I'm really open about it. If I came in like some self-help guru and I was like, I have all the answers that can make someone feel like, you know, this is going to be really hard, you know, hard in a certain way because they feel like, well, I can't tell anybody I'm struggling and so on. But I mean, I think, you know, these misconceptions that our mind gives us, they're part of the human condition, right? You know, it would be non-normative if I didn't struggle with this stuff too. And I definitely do. I'm also, I think, in the positive psychology literature, they talk about this idea that, you know, there's a little bit of a genetic predisposition to happiness, not a big one, but, you know, there is some heritability to happiness. And heritability speaking, I probably didn't win the happiness lottery. You know, I'm probably genetically, (laughs) yeah, definitely. I'm genetically predisposed to like complain a lot, not naturally choose sociality, look on the dark side of things. You know, people who know me well are kind of shocked that I feel. Definitely. Now, people who've known me before this, shocked. They're like, you're teaching this happiness class? Oh, gosh, you know. But I think that that gives me a certain insight, right? Because I see how easy it is to go astray. I see how hard it is to try out some of these strategies, you know, even simple things like increasing social connection, becoming more present, you know, expressing gratitude. These don't come naturally to me. But because I know the science, I do them now a lot more Mm. than I did before. And so I would say, on the one hand, I struggle in the sense that none of this stuff is my natural intuition. But I do the stuff that science tells me, and it really seems to work. And so you asked, what are the things I'm struggling with now? Well, we're chatting in the midst of this ending, but still global pandemic, right? You know, that's not been very fun, to be totally honest. And then there's a lot of very specific things that I struggle with. You know, the time affluence thing is huge. You know, I have so many opportunities where I get to talk to Mo, Mm. right, for as long Mm. as I want. And I'm often in a situation of 
cutting that shorter than I would otherwise like to, in part because I want to keep time to be present so that when I leave this you know, interview, I'll run into my husband and we can have lunch together or something. So this amazing opportunity has come with a lot of different cool things I get to do. And I have to say a no to a lot of cool ones just to kind of make sure I don't get too time famished. I actually do struggle with time a lot, actually. Today, specifically, I'm, I started at 8.30 a.m. and I will finish at 10.30 p.m. without pee breaks. So it's really quite something. Like, I would have to apologize in some part of the meetings and say, guys, I need to finish this two minutes early. Otherwise, I won't start the next one on time. And I know that about you. I know that you're ticking. You even speak a little faster than the average happiness guru, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Anything specific other than blocking out time? You know, how do you become time affluent? How do you become rich in time? Yeah, well, my favorite thing about time affluence, it didn't have to be this way, it just is this way scientifically, is that time affluence isn't about the objective amount of time you have. It's about your subjective sense that you have some time. And that means you can hack time affluence without objectively giving yourself more time. You don't necessarily need to clear the calendar to feel more time affluent. And two good ways to do this is one, to use your money to buy more time. So I've done a lot of things Very like, interesting. you know, curbside pickup and not just use your money to buy free time, but frame it that way. So these days, if I get some like food delivery or something in the context of the pandemic, when I pick up the bag, I take a moment to figure out how much time I saved. Today, I got a veggie burger and fries. You know, I would have had to chop up these fries and fry them and stick the pan in the dishwasher and like go to the grocery store to get the veggies and chop them. I saved, what, 2.5 hours, right? I give myself an actual objective amount of time I saved. And that's a moment where I'm like, man, that was 2.5 hours today, you know, just by purchasing this takeout. You know, so that kind of reframing can really help. Another strategy, which again, I stole from uh, Ashley Willens, whose name I mentioned before, is to make what she calls a time confetti wish list. So time confetti is this odd thing that we have now that we didn't have as much a few years ago where we do have free time, but it's just broken up in these tiny weird chunks. So if our conversation finished, it'd be like five minutes here and there, you know, or like 10 minutes if you're, you know, your child goes to bed early or something like that. We often don't realize we can do something good with that free time. For me, my natural instinct is like to blow it off or look at something stupid on social media or check my email or something. But Ashley points out like, no, 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 those are those are little free time windows. Like make a list of the things you really want to be doing. So on my list is sometimes things like do three deep breaths, right? In between meetings, it can be hard to just text a friend to set up a time that we yeah. can do some yoga or things like that. So use those little chunks of time confetti productively for your happiness. And that too can do two things. One is it just makes you happier because you're using it productively to take a breath or experience gratitude or something like that. But it also lets you feel a little less time famished because you're not sprinting from things to things. You realize like, hey, I got 10 minutes here. I'm going to use this well, not for work stuff well, but for like you stuff well. Yeah. Don't squeeze four more emails in it. Do the right thing with it. Before we go, I also, one of my favorite things that you did when uh, lockdown started for everyone, watch Lori's uh, video on YouTube about COVID-19. I think it's uh, it was a Q&A and, you know, people just asked all the relevant questions. And as always, Lori's answers were amazing. So you maybe do a little bit of that uh, when you have the time. But Lori, what would be your top advice? I mean, the pandemic has... I think we're going to be coming out of lockdown now that winter is leaving us. But there is still a lot of pressure. And I think this time also came with lots of 
problems that humanity was facing, you know, George Floyd and the pressures that we had and, you know, the, a little bit of the, I don't want to say disgruntlement, but, you know, there are things that we started to recognize that need to be fixed because of the injustice in the world. What would be your top advice at the current time, going out of lockdown, but still in uncertain times, what would be your biggest happiness advice? Yeah, my biggest advice, which I try to apply to myself, is that this is a time for some self-compassion. This pandemic sucks enough as it is without you beating yourself up about not being the best spouse or not being the best worker or not being the best parent or not even being able to like load the dishwasher well. I had that thought the other day of like, I always put the stuff in and I'm like, why am I beating myself up in the midst of this bad time for like how I load the dishwasher? And so the idea is to just give yourself some grace to recognize that this is a crappy time and you're not going to be perfect and you're going to have negative emotions. It's normative to have negative emotions. And what can you do to nurture yourself a little bit? Not avoid it or run away from those emotions, but really take time to take care of yourself. So this might be a period where you do have to cancel more meetings and not feel guilty about it. This might be a period where, you know, you do let the kids watch a little bit more screen time than you would normally. You need to give yourself some wiggle room without guilt. That's the kind of nurturing we all need right now. You know what? I'm going to give you a time confetti of one minute. Uh, because, <laughs> because you said you're going to spend that with your husband. I really, by the way, respect that. I really adore everything that you do. I think you're a fabulous addition to our world. If we had three more lorries in the world, I think we would have a much better place. Guys listening to us, I would just tell you, I'm a huge fan. Find Lori online, find her work, find her podcast and learn because here is a one of the rare beings that knows what she's talking about, but also has the right heart in place to make a difference for all of us. It's such an honor, Lori. I'm so grateful that you joined me and for all the work that you do. Thank you so much. That, again, means so much coming from you. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Well, so that must have been our quickest slow-mo so far. But as I said during the conversation, I'm just introducing you to Lori asking you to send her a ton of positive energy. Such a wonderful being who is really putting her effort, mostly for free to spread happiness around the world and someone that knows really what she's talking about. So find her content online, find her podcast, the mini episode about the spiritual and ancient philosophies and religions, April 5 uh, of the Happiness Lab. And yeah, I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. And uh, I hope that you stay in touch. Find me on social media, uh, Mo underscore Gaudet on Instagram, M Gaudet on Twitter, Mo Gaudet on uh, LinkedIn, and Mo.Gaudet.Official on Facebook. Let's keep the conversation going. I am so grateful for all of the wonderful and kind messages that I receive from so many of you thanking me for hosting such amazing guests. I also am very, very grateful for the opportunity that you give me to host them as an alibi, just to record those conversations for you when in reality, they enrich my life as much as I hope they enrich yours. And um, while you're at it, please do rate the podcast five stars, leave a wonderful kind comment. That would be your easiest way to contribute to sharing the message and helping others understand that this is something that they should subscribe to as well. And well, we spoke quickly today, so I give you a few confetti time minutes back, hopefully to slow down because remember, it doesn't matter what you have on your agenda every day. There's always a little bit of time to slow down. I love you all for listening and I'll see you next time.